This is The Guardian. I'm Laura Murphy-Oates, and this is The Full Story. In just under a week, Australia's 47th Parliament will sit for the first time, and the Labor government will begin the task of legislating their election promises on things like climate targets, gender equality, and corruption in politics. But the path to legislation is not clear-cut. They'll need to navigate a new political landscape with a new leadership team. So who has power in this new parliament? And how will that impact Labor's plans to pass key legislation? Today, what to expect when parliament returns. It's Wednesday, the 20th of July. Murph, Parliament resumes next week. Can you tell me a little bit about it and what it's going to look like? Well, it's the 47th Parliament, Laura. Uh, it's, uh, it's a progressive Parliament. That's the real kind of <laughs> mind switch from the 2019 election result to the 2022 election result. Catherine Murphy is Guardian Australia's political editor. It's the most progressive parliament we've seen for a while. Mm. Now, what that sort of translates to in practice is the government has a thin majority in the House of Representatives. Then in the Senate, it will need the support of the Greens, uh, who did well in this election. So Labor needs the support of either all of the Greens plus one of the new crossbench Mm. in order to get their legislation through, or, of course, the coalition is still in the Senate, so uh, it, it will be open to the new Labor government to uh, deal with the coalition when the coalition is willing to pass any of the legislation giving effect to Labor's agenda. Mm. And how does this divvying up of power compare to the last parliament that we had? Let's take a step back, Laura, because it's it's both similar and different. Mm. <laughs> Over the last few elections, we've had, uh, at least in the House of Representatives, we've had governments by very thin margins, mm. right? Scott Morrison had a very thin margin. So did Malcolm Turnbull. Uh, the last time we sort of saw a government with a decent margin in the lower house was Tony Abbott. So again, we have a government in the lower house by a thin margin. Labor has 77 seats. It can form a speaker from within its own ranks, but it's it's tight. Now, Anthony Albanese in the in the lower house doesn't have to deal with Scott Morrison's constant problem, which was the fear that some of his own people would cross the floor. Mm. That's what made that last parliament quite precarious for the prime minister, and we saw that on a range of issues, right? His own people would get up and vote differently than what the Prime Minister proposed on religious discrimination or uh, Bridget Archer famously on the Integrity Commission, right, over the other side of the chamber. In Labor, there's caucus discipline. People Mm. can't just cross the floor, basically. If they cross the floor, they're basically leaving the Labor Party. Mm. And what about the Senate? How is that different from the last parliament? In terms of the Senate, well, yeah, look, we had in the last Senate, there was the government would need to do deals with the crossbench uh, if Labor wasn't supporting legislation. Mm. You know, Pauline Hanson was a very important figure and her votes in the Senate was an important figure because it was sort of a matter of assembling a handful of votes for the coalition in order to get its legislation across the line. Mm. So in the last parliament, we saw sort of right-leaning players with a fair bit of power in the Senate, in this parliament, the 47th, we'll see left-leaning players with a fair bit of power to make or break government bills. 
Let's talk through those left-leaning players and the other players in the Senate. Who is on the crossbench here in this Senate? Well, as we said uh, a minute ago, uh, we've got the Greens. They got another three spots in the Senate. Uh, I think that's right. Mm -hmm. That makes 12. So that goes a long way to giving the Labor Party the numbers they need in order to pass legislation. And also in the Senate, we have uh, David Pocock, the former professional rugby union player who is Mm. an environmental activist, and he succeeded in taking a Senate spot for the ACT. He knocked out a Liberal. Zed Zizelja from the Senate. So he is a progressive who I think will line up, you know, with the Greens on a, on a number of issues, but not all issues, obviously. We also still have in the Senate our Northern Tasmanian friends, Jackie Lambie, and she now has a running mate, uh, Tammy Tyrrell. And we talked about that a bit during the campaign, Laura. The Jackie Lambie effect. Yes, the Jackie Lambie factor. Anyway, so there's two Lambieites uh, in the Senate as well. Mm. They are votes that the government will need to cultivate on occasions in order to get its legislation through. For example, if you know if the Greens are on, on board but Pocock isn't, then Anthony Albanese will be looking to Jackie Lambie and Tammy Tyrrell in order to get legislation through. Mm. So uh, I, I guess if we're sort of ranking the kind of complexion of the Senate, we've got these progressive players. You'd put Jackie and Tammy in the sort of centrist populist vein. Mm. We've got a new United Australia Party guy. Pauline Hanson has obviously survived and will be there, but I don't know that they will be particularly significant or influential players in this parliament. But, you know, never say never. I'm particularly interested in the Lambie Network members in the Senate. As you mentioned, there's a new member. We've got two. Lambie was a bit of a wild card last parliament. I couldn't really tell where she might fall on certain issues. Are we expecting the same from Tammy and will they be as important? I think that Jackie Lambie and Tammy Tyrrell, who have worked together for a very long time, will try and vote as a block, I Mm. think. What can be absolutely predicted... Laura, is that the two Lambieites will use their position in the Senate to try and extract as much support for Northern Tasmania as they possibly can in this Mm. election cycle. And the Labor Party failed to gain the two lower house seats in Northern Tasmania in this election campaign. So Labor's got a Northern Tassie problem too. So that whole nexus, I think, will be an interesting little subplot to watch during the 47th Parliament. Right. But we're imagining that you know, for Labor's progressive agenda, that they've got their more progressive items on their agenda, it's probably going to be a Greens and Pocock alliance a lot of the time. Yes. The prediction is that the sort of main Senate kingmakers in the 47th Parliament will be the Greens plus David Pocock. Mm. There are other players about, but this is the group we anticipate to be the main game. So that's the Senate. I'm wondering if we can shift focus a little bit to the new cabinet. Who are the most important faces in the cabinet that we need to know, Murph? Let's think about it this way. Anthony Albanese has an inner circle. The inner circle is basically comprised of Penny Wong, who is Labor Senate leader and the foreign minister and one of Anthony Albanese's oldest friends and and factional allies. Mm. They're very different personalities, but the pair of them are very tight. Also tight with the prime minister is Mark Butler, the health minister. Mm. Mark Butler and uh, Anthony Albanese are both left-wingers. They basically, you United the left in the Labor caucus in around uh, 2010. Uh, again, they are sort of peas in a factional pod and uh, they are also long-time 
friends and uh, collaborators in terms of uh, both power and and in terms of policy. Mm. So Butler is also important. Anthony Albanese has become very close over this period in uh, on the road to government to his treasurer, Jim Chalmers, and his finance minister, Katie Gallagher. Uh, Jim Chalmers is a right-winger and is regarded as a future leadership prospect uh, mm. for the Labor right. Katie Gallagher is a left-winger and uh, hasn't got the, the decades of history with Anthony Albanese that Penny Wong and Mark Butler have, but is nonetheless very close to the leader. And uh, and the three of them, the, the Prime Minister, the Finance Minister and the Treasurer, have regular meetings, just the three of them to work through agendas, to work through policy. So it's very much a sort of hive mind or a brains trust. And also, of course, I should, I've neglected to mention Richard Miles, who is uh, the Deputy Prime Minister uh, and a Victorian right-winger. Now, he's not, again, in the, in the inner, inner sanctum of the government to the extent of having decades of history with Anthony Albanese, but he's a very important person for Anthony Albanese in, in a power sense, in a labour power sense. Mm. That's the sort of core engine room of the government. Mm. Uh, and then, you know, there, there will be ministers who are playing very important roles. But Mark Dreyfus, very important. The Attorney General always is. But Mark Dreyfus has to carry uh, the voice for example. He also has to produce by, you know, over the coming months, a model for Labor's Federal Integrity Commission. And Linda Burney, a long, long time friend and associate of Anthony Albanese, who has the Indigenous Affairs portfolio. Mm. This is the largest number of women who have ever served in an Australian cabinet with 10 women in the cabinet. In addition to that, in terms of the ministry, uh, there are 13 uh, women uh, in the ministry and uh, 19 uh, front benches, a record number in all three categories uh, for women's representation in cabinet, in ministry and in front bench positions. Mm -hmm. Right. Is it fair to say that there's more women and more Aboriginal people yeah. in this broader ministry yeah. that we're about to see? Yeah. I, I don't think we've smashed the patriarchy or solved the diversity problem, sadly, for anyone listening who had their hopes up on that front. But yes, it is entirely fair to say that this is a more diverse parliament and, you know, affirmative action has been a factor in that, as well as the, you know, very good performance by a number of these women during the period of opposition. Next, the Labor government's top priorities and the path to legislation. Okay, Murph, so we've got a handle on some of the key players and how they're going to interact in this new parliament. Let's talk about Labor's priorities when parliament resumes next week. What do they want to do first and what's kind of top of the list? Well, in the first two weeks, we're going to see the first tranche of climate legislation, the Labor government's efforts to legislate a 43% emissions reduction target. Mm. We're going to see that in the first fortnight and another piece of legislation with it, which is about cutting tariffs uh, for electric vehicles to make them 
more affordable, which mm. is the first step in their sort of uh, a transport strategy, basically, in climate and energy. So they're sort of first cabs off the rank, if that makes sense. And we'll get to some other ledge in a minute, Laura, but I think we probably need to point listeners in the direction of the most important thing over these sort of first few months as the new government settles in to, you know, being in government again. We've got a budget in October. And sorry to everyone for, you know, a two-budget year. Two-budget year. Yeah, I mean, it feels extreme, but uh, we do have a two-budget year. Jim Chalmers, you know, back to the opening two weeks of Parliament, he will make an economic statement in the opening couple of weeks of Parliament and then it's all eyes on the budget in October because, of course, everybody listening to the show today, Laura, will be struggling with cost of living on a range of fronts, rising mm. prices, interest rates, uh, petrol prices. Mm. Uh, there's all the costs associated with the pandemic. So, look, it, it, you, we really need to foreground the budget because I think it's it's a sort of, it'll be an important economic statement and it'll set the direction for the new government. So we just need to hang a little lantern over the budget. Mm. Beyond climate, over the opening two weeks and, and the economy, the new government wants to legislate a number of bodies like Jobs and Skills Australia and, and uh, reconstruction authorities and all of these sorts of things that are associated with election commitments. We will see those sort of push through the parliament, I think, reasonably expeditiously. Also, very important, if we look uh, sort of over the period between now and Christmas is uh, the legislation giving effect to the Federal Anti-Corruption Commission. Mm. Mark Dreyfus is engaged in a whole bunch of consultation on that now, both with experts, with the crossbench in the lower house and also in the Senate, to try and basically get a bill into Parliament quickly because the Prime Minister has made it clear that he wants that legislation passed before Christmas. So mm. that'll be a really big agenda item for them as well. What about some of the other big ticket items on their reform agenda? Is there a timetable for things like voice to parliament, aged care, other things? Yeah, look, I think those things we'll be seeing in the second year of uh, the Albanese government in terms of delivering those things or attempting to deliver those things. Climate change, aged care, well, aged care will be ongoing. The Voice, Labor is giving us the impression that they want to bring the referendum forward 12 months to next year so that this could actually be done next year rather than towards the end of the term. In order to do that, though, the the, the position at an advocacy level of the, of the coalition will be quite important too, whether or not they support or oppose that. But look, that stuff's important. There's lots of activity visible, but they're longer term agenda items. Mm. When it comes to their immediate agenda for legislation, though, it sounds like there's some meaty things there. They want to tackle climate targets and this anti-corruption commission. Let's talk about those a bit. I mean, what is in this legislation for the climate targets and what are we expecting over the next couple of weeks? Well, what's in the, the climate ledge, there's two elements. I flagged a minute ago, there's the element that, that cuts uh, tariffs on imported electric vehicles, which is a sort of a price measure, right, to make those make cars cheaper. The, the primary bill, the really signature 
Forfeiture Bill over the first sitting fortnight is what happens with the bill that legislates the 43% emissions reduction target. This bill mm. does, well, it does two things. It legislates 43% and it legislates the net zero commitment that Scott Morrison said he was into but didn't legislate, right? Does those mm. two things. It sets up a bunch of accountability mechanisms too for the climate change minister. What it does is it requires an independent advisor, the Climate Change Authority, to provide regular reporting on whether or not we're meeting the target, right? And that reporting is done to parliament and and the, the climate change minister is obliged to make an annual statement to basically give himself a pass, a pass or a fail mark, right? Mm. We're either on track or we're not. And uh, and that's an, a sort of independent accountability process that this bill aims to establish so that, you know, we'll, the public will have visibility on the transition, if that mm. makes sense, right? So, look, there's a whole lot of noise around about that bill at the moment. Uh, the Greens basically want a ratchet mechanism in this bill so that uh, to make it absolutely beyond doubt that the 43% emissions reduction target is a floor, not a ceiling, but the government is running a process of consultation to try and work out what amendments it can cop to this legislation while staying true to what it told voters it would do prior to the election. Right. So assuming that the coalition are not going to support Labor's climate legislation, the Greens are going to be pretty essential here. As you mentioned, they hold 12 of the 13 votes needed in the upper house. How are those conversations going? between Labor and the Greens on this issue? Well, look, I think there's a difference between the negotiation that's being played out in the media and what's happening behind the scenes. I get the impression behind the scenes things are a bit more constructive than they are, uh, you know, in terms of the telegraphing through the media. But, look, there are substantial differences. Obviously, the Labor Party has its 43% target, which is modelled and costed. The Greens has a higher target, north of 70%. The Greens also want a moratorium on all new coal and gas developments because they say, you know, you can't have a a climate change that addresses mitigation, emissions reduction, while at the same time as opening up new coal, oil and gas projects. Now, that's mm. that's right on the science, but the but the issue is that everybody has re, has election mandates. It's not like, uh, you know, the Greens are the only people with a mandate or the Labor Party are the only people with a mandate. But, but Labor is in government and uh, and it made a number of undertakings to Australian voters that it will be very reluctant to be seen to be reneging on. And the reason for that is the the whole last 10 years of torturous history around this issue. So before the election, Labor did make very clear that they would not be working with the Greens to sneak in a higher emissions reduction target into this legislation once in government. They actually don't need to legislate a target to start to bring down emissions. So what do the Greens want here in order for them to get behind this bill? Adam Bant uh, had a long conversation with me about his priorities on my own podcast, Australian Politics. If they wanted to talk to us about a strategy to deal with coal and gas, we'd love to have the conversation. And I, I'm not going to put anything in or off, uh, on or off the table. Bant is sending a message that it can't be my way or the highway. The question will be um, whether uh, there is scope for discussion. He's basically saying, look, you're going to have to give us something. You can't put the fire out while you're pouring petrol on it. And I want to be clear about this. We all have differences of views with Labor on targets. We all have differences of views with Labor on how to get out of coal and gas, how quickly to get out of coal and gas. 
we will spend the next period of this parliament hopefully working together on that. Can they come to terms? I hope so. I hope there is some means of of meeting in a in a constructive posture between these two groups mm. uh, that will require the Greens to uh, basically accept the point that something is always better than nothing. Like that's a pretty fundamental point that the Greens are going to have to accept. Something is better than nothing. Mm. And Labor is also going to have to look with a degree of seriousness because of the composition of the parliament and everybody's respective mandates about what it may be able to deliver that's consistent with what it told voters before the election in May. Mm. So that's that's a real complicated bit of surgery, Laura. Mm. The Coalition has criticised Labor for its light on sitting calendar. There's only about eight weeks, 30 days until the end of the year where they will be sitting. But if Labor does manage to pass legislation on climate targets and an anti-corruption commission by the end of the year, what do you make of that progress? If the Labor Party is able to emerge uh, with legislation giving effect to its climate commitments and a piece of legislation that many parliamentary actors can agree on in terms of the Federal Integrity Commission, these are two really big things. Mm. Like, really big things. So it's sort of funny, isn't it? Like we did spend a lot of time in the election campaign saying Labor light, oh, there's not much here. Oh, look, this isn't much of a program compared to, you know, the complicated agenda that it prosecuted for the 2019 election. You know, this was sort of out there in the zeitgeist, right? Nothing to see here, not much going on. Well, I think if you look at this government in terms of a substantive legislative and policy agenda, there, there is a lot happening And there's a lot happening pretty quickly as well. I think, you know, that that old adage, change the government, change the country, we can already see in terms of the tone and tenor of a lot of the political conversation. And then by the end of the year, we're going to see these substantive things that will, in fact, change the country. Okay, Merv, thanks so much. Pleasure. That was Catherine Murphy, Guardian Australia's political editor. You can follow all of our political coverage at theguardian.com and we've put some links to the latest news on Labor's plan to legislate climate targets and other key reforms on the full story page. This episode was produced by Karishma Luthria and Miles Herbert. Sound design and mixing by Camilla Hannon. The executive producers of Full Story are Miles Martignoni, Gabrielle Jackson and me, Laura Murphy Okay, catch you tomorrow.